Well, today we immerse ourselves in the continuing narrative of Mark chapter 15. And this is the narrative that forms the backdrop for a very important doctrine that is seen throughout the whole New Testament and in all the epistles. And that's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. So understand this, the doctrine we're going to see today in its creedal form is in the epistles. And in its historical form, in its narrative form, it's here in Mark and the other Gospels. The doctrine we're looking at is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, last week we looked at its personal aspect. This week we're looking at its penal aspect. And what we mean by that is, what is the penalty uh, that goes along with the substitutionary atonement? That Christ died not just in our place, but to pay the price of our sin. So that's what we're looking at today. It's a very important doctrine. I'd remind you that it's important to ask ourselves this question as we begin this discussion. What is the penalty for sin? I mean, what is the price that has to be paid? And Romans gives us a very explicit answer. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It's completely clear, um, um, no doubt about it, that death is the penalty for sin. In fact, we see this throughout the Bible, even in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, who were given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, here's what God says, Genesis 2, 17, if you do in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And so this idea of death as the penalty for sin is continuing to be seen throughout the Old Testament as we approach the coming of Christ um, especially in the deliverance from Egypt, the Passover, the slaying of the sacrificial lamb, the blood on the doorpost, the darkness over the land. And then, of course, that's remembered every single year, the Day of Atonement. All of those are just um, images and types and themes that point us to Christ, not just dying in our place, but dying in our place as, as the one who would pay our penalty for sin. In fact, I, I really like the way Daniel Hames talks about this in his article, Why I Changed My Mind About Penal Substitution. He actually says that, that penal substitution, Christ paying our penalty, is not just a peripheral element of the Bible. It's actually a central theme. It's not artificially imposed. It is the story's vast sweep. And this is what we're seeing today. And this is what our text zeroes in on. The substitutionary atonement in its penal aspects of Jesus Christ. Our text is Mark chapter 15. And this morning, as we hear our text read to us, would you just let the Lord uh, grip your heart with this text? Would you let these verses seize you and, and pray that God would just begin to open up your heart and your mind and your eyes to the incredible, wonderful truth of Christ's substitutionary atonement? Mark 15, 16 to 39. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So how does this text, Mark 15, verses 16 through 39, how do they show Jesus paying the penalty as our substitute? I think there are at least three ways. First of all, Jesus paid our penalty physically. And by this, I'm referring to the fact that Jesus paid our penalty in actual historical time and space. I want to emphasize here the reality of the crucifixion, all right? And let's think about it from a, from a few points. First of all, there's no doubt that the physical uh, crucifixion of Jesus is seen in every single one of these verses. In fact, Mark is, is quite uh, blunt in the way he goes about describing the crucifixion of Jesus physically. Just statement after statement after statement. I think one of the clearest ones is the fact that he is crucified with criminals. You know, criminals don't die unless they're being punished, unless they're being penalized. They're paying a price for their sin. And here Christ is being crucified with criminals. And so the, the general motif of the crucifixion is that a criminal is dying. Someone's paying a penalty. Now, Christ didn't commit a crime. He was just. He was perfect. But he's with those who did. So the company, the criminals that he's with is indicate. Uh, indicative of the fact that, that Jesus here was paying a, a, a price, but not just in the company or the criminals, but I think in the chronology as well. You know, it even begins before verse 16. Remember in verse 15, uh, Pilate has him scourged before he delivers him over to be crucified. And that scourging was, was sometimes even lethal in itself. But he leaves the scourging and there the Roman soldiers take him. By the way, a battalion is 600 soldiers. Makes you wonder sometimes, man, were they expecting Christ to revolt? Were they worried about a, 
an uprising there in this moment. But that's a lot of soldiers. They begin to strike him on the head, to mock him, to ridicule him. They take large thorns and they form a crown and they press it into his head. They strip him of his clothes. They take the most expensive dye of that day, purple, and they, they, they put it on him. And so imagine your upper body being torn apart, bloody and ripped, the flesh hanging open. And then you attach to that cloth and you rip it off. Then you attach the cloth and you rip it off. So there's this continuing tearing of his flesh. There's this continuing mocking. Christ here is devastated physically. And then they give him the cross beam. And he begins to walk towards Golgotha or Calvary. He is so devastated, he can't even carry the cross beam. This is why I think there's a mention of Simon of Cyrene. There's no other reason to have him in the story except to say that, that Christ was so physically depleted, he could not even carry the beam. And so they uh, recruit a, a man to do it. By the way, it looks like this man's sons may have been Christians and were part of the church at Rome because in Romans 16, the name Rufus is mentioned. And most historians believe this may be the same man. Just an interesting sidebar thought there. But here's Simon's carrying the cross beam. They get to Golgotha. Then they take Christ and they lay the cross beam and they spike his wrist and his feet. Then they plunge this cross into a hole in the ground. And so every bit of this torture is physical in nature. And then for six hours, Christ hangs there while the mocking and the ridicule continues. He's bleeding. He's gasping for breath. And for six hours... He's enduring a crucifixion, three of those hours, of course, in darkness. And then ultimately, at three o'clock, Jesus actually, historically, physically dies. This is what's happening in these verses from a physical perspective. So both in the company he keeps, both in the chronology of the, of the uh, event, we see that there's a penalty being paid. Christ is being crucified as a criminal, but he's not one. He's paying our price, though he didn't owe anything. Now, let me answer a question you may be wondering. Why was all this even necessary? Couldn't God just from heaven say, sins are forgiven. I'll atone without something physically happening with Christ's body. Here's why that was not possible. Because for there to be an atoning sacrifice, there actually has to be a physical body. Just as in all the previous centuries, there was an actual lamb, there was an actual offering. There had to be an actual body. And so, unbelievably, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement mandates the doctrine of the incarnation. So Christ had to come, be born, and, and take on the body of a human being, a man. And then in that body, give his life as a ransom for many. So the physical aspect of this event, the physical aspect of Christ's substitutionary atonement is vital. It's critical. And it's shown here in these verses that Christ paid our penalty physically. They remind me of the verses in Psalm 22. Look here with me for a moment, would you? And look at all the physical references that are in this messianic psalm. This psalm is written by David hundreds of years before Christ was crucified. And yet look at how specific they are to Christ's moment. He mentions the word bones. His heart is like wax. He talks about his strength being dried up, his tongue sticking to his jaws. He talks about how they're piercing his hands and his feet. He also talks about how he can count his bones, his garments, his clothing. These are all physical aspects that show us Jesus was physically crucified and paid our price in his body. 
Let's move on to the second thing we learn. The second thing that, that we see is Christ paid the penalty divinely. And this is referencing now the, the theological aspects of the crucifixion. I want to emphasize here the truths of the crucifixion. You see these mainly beginning about verse 33 and verse 34. Through the darkness over the whole land, which is the judgment of God. And then, of course, the desperation of Jesus in which he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now understand something here. This is the moment. I would even say it's the apex of Christ's spiritual suffering. Now, do you recall a few weeks ago, we talked about Christ as our sufferer. We mentioned that he suffered in three ways. He suffered relationally, emotionally, and physically. And we did not mention how he suffered spiritually. And here's why. Because it shows up best in this part of the text. But let's not make any mistake. Jesus did suffer spiritually. And these moments are the apex of that spiritual suffering. Now, there's two things that happened in these three hours from noon to three when there was darkness and desperation. There were two things for sure that happened. Expiation and then propitiation. Now, those are kind of big words, but let me show you what they mean because they're theologically important. Expiation is the act of sin's removal. It's when God took the sin of the world, and he placed it on Jesus. He took our debit and he gave it to Christ. And Christ paid the price for our sins. That's expiation, the removal of sin from one account to another. But then there's propitiation, which is the result of the act. It simply means satisfaction. It's what God knew and experienced once Christ paid the debt. So these two things happened in this Three hours of darkness and desperation. Now, let's be clear about something. In this simple phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 34, there is a good bit of spiritual mystery. Jesus here is sensing some type of, of abandonment, a forsaking by the Father. And yet we know that there is perfect relational unity within the Trinity. And so there's some elements of this that I, as a human, am not able to fully explain. I, I just want to make sure you understand something here. These three hours in which God made Jesus to be sin for us, these three hours, that must have been the moment in which Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when he felt the abandonment, when he was bearing our sin. Let's understand something very clearly. This is not something that happened to the Trinity accidentally. They weren't caught off guard. Our Trinitarian God wasn't cornered or surprised. In fact, our elders were discussing this phrase last Tuesday. We were just marveling at it and digging into it and discussing it. And, and, and Ed Gregory so aptly reminded us, this is not something that happened to the Trinity. This is something planned by the Trinity. So as hard as it is to grasp this spiritual mystery, let's understand something here. This is also a wonderful reality. God the Father... God the Son and God the Spirit all working together for the redemption of all those who believe. This is what's going on in these three hours in which Jesus knew the darkness and the desperation of being forsaken by his Father. I think the, the most clearest verse to succinctly describe this moment is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Look at how Paul writes about it. For our sake, 
He, first pronoun there refers to God, made him, second pronoun refers to Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. This is the moment of the great exchange when in those three hours, Jesus bore the sins of the world. God knew it. The Holy Spirit empowered him for it. And together, the Trinity, the three-in-one God, purchased the church unto himself. Now, unmistakably, these are the three most important hours in the history of the world. When Jesus bore the sins of the world. But these are also capped with the three most important words in the history of the world. And those words, it is finished. And in those words, we really understand what I think is the third way we see Christ paying our penalty. Christ paid our penalty fully. What I mean by that is he paid the price eternally. And here I'm speaking of, of the duration or the effect of the crucifixion. So in the first point, we saw the historical nature, the reality of the crucifixion. Then we looked at the truths of the crucifixion. And now we're really seeing the effect or the duration of the crucifixion. What we're finding is this, that it is completed. It's perfected. It's done. Salvation is, is full and free. In fact, I, I love the way John describes this moment. It's John 19, about verse 28. Don't turn there, but just, just, just watch this with me. In John 19, 28, you get the sense that this is very intentional by Jesus. In fact, the, the verse begins with the phrase, after this. And so you ask yourself, what was happening that Jesus would ask for a drink and then say it is finished? It must have been the three hours in which he's bearing the sins of the world. So John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was about to be finished. You see, Jesus was, was intentional, aware he was willfully laying down his life for the sheep. And he knew at the end of those three hours that the measure of God's wrath was, was being filled up completely. And so he asked for a simple drink. And then John records that he said, it is finished and breathed his last. This must be what Mark is referring to when he talks about how Christ uttered a loud cry in verse 37. That cry, was, they were the words, it is is finished. Now, in other words, we could say this, it is enough. Isn't that good news to hear? That it's enough? Christ's death is enough? There's nothing more to do. It's your debt's fully paid. By the way, two beings knew this for sure. God knew it. Look what he did in verse 37. It says, excuse me, verse 38. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So God knew that he was satisfied with Christ's death. The full measure being paid up. That's why he, he tore the curtain. This is a very thick curtain. And by the way, there were two curtains in the temple. I think this refers to the second curtain that separates um, uh, people from the Holy of Holies. It's the presence of God's dwelling. But in this moment of Christ filling up the full measure of God's wrath against sin, God rips this curtain saying that there is now access. In other words, people aren't closed off anymore. It's not just a once a year moment. There's not just one person who can approach. Man, all who believe can enter God's presence. So God knew he was satisfied. And watch this. 
I think the centurion knew something's different now. Look what he says, verse 39. When he saw the way in which Jesus breathed his last, perhaps referring to the comments he made that it was finished, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And this centurion moved from just seeing Christ as a man to seeing Christ as the God-man. In fact, when he calls him the son of God, he's actually calling him the very title that Mark gives Jesus in the opening verse of this gospel. If you read Mark 1.1, it says this, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. And so Mark spends 16 chapters showing us and teaching us Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And here the centurion gets it. He gets it when he hears the phrase and sees uh, it is finished and sees Christ die. He knows right then, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. I love the way the identity of Jesus here is seen as what we've been studying now for 36 plus weeks, that Jesus was the servant of man, but he was the Son of God. And he served us by paying the price, paying the penalty and taking our place. As a result, there are no more sacrifices needed. Isn't that great to know, church? We don't make treks to the temple. We don't have to offer the, the, the daily burnt offering. Those days are gone because they're fulfilled in Christ. And this is why Hebrews 10, 10 would say with such rejoicing clarity, and by that will, speaking of God's will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the phrase once for all, refers really to the offering of the body of Jesus. He did it once and for all in time and space, in reality, in history, and it suffices forever. Praise the Lord for the glorious substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So can we review just briefly? Three ways that Jesus Christ paid our penalty. He paid it physically, he paid it divinely, and he paid it fully. He took your place and paid your debt in all three of these ways. And I think this helps us see, really, our stay-at-home truth today. It kind of helps the, the big idea emerge without any problem at all. It's very similar to last week's. In fact, it's the same as last week's because we're looking at the same topic, substitutionary atonement. But we've added a few words at the end to bring, a, to bring in the penal aspect. So here's our big idea. In fact, at home, just say this with me. It's on the screen. Just, just kind of say this as a family, as a unit of friends. Here's our, our stay-at-home truth today. That Jesus died in our place as the only suitable substitute for sinners, saving us personally from sin's penalty and punishment. He took your death. He took my death. Physically, divinely, fully. He has taken our place. I love this truth, and I love this doctrine, and what a beautiful doctrine to have under our feet as we enter into Passion Week 2020, here beginning on Palm Sunday, extending to Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday. And what a beautiful doctrine to, to place under us as our foundation that Jesus took our place. He paid our penalty. Now, just quickly, I've got to show you something really interesting, because Knowing that Jesus took your place, paid your penalty, he took your death, means that death has lost some things. In other words, there's three things at least that death no longer has over those who believe. And I, I find this to be um, deeply exciting. Watch this. 
Because Jesus paid our penalty of death, the sting of death is gone. In other words, it's no longer a dead end. It's a doorway for those who believe. Now, this does not mean death is not difficult. The process of dying is difficult, but it's not a dead end. It is a doorway to God's presence. It means the separation after death is gone. This involves others. And the promise that we will see again those who have died in Christ. And then the condemnation from death is gone. In other words, when we stand before God, we're not going to be marked as a sinner. We'll be marked as a saint covered by the blood of Jesus that he gave when he died in our place. Don't you love this? The sting of death is gone. The separation after death is gone. The condemnation from death is gone. And that's because Christ took your death for you. He took our death. He died in our place. He took our penalty. Now, admittedly, these happen in the fullest extent when Christ comes back. The most practical understanding of these will be when Christ returns. But these are still, nonetheless, true in every theological sense in the current here and now. And this is possible because Jesus has paid our penalty of death. The penal aspect of substitutionary atonement, it should cause you to wonder and marvel. Now, as we, as we kind of land this plane, let me ask this question. What should our response be? How should we react to this doctrine? Well, there's probably many answers to that. We said earlier that marveling, wondering, those are no doubt happening even now. But can I put your nose in the text one more time? Because we not only draw our interpretation from the text, I mean, we want to draw our application from the text. I mean, you've known this since the day we started. We're going to be a very gospel-centered, word-based church. It's the authority of God's word that comes in among us and stands over us. We get under it. And it's what sets the table for us. So let's, this morning, draw the application from the text as well. And, and I love the way that Mark continues to show us what the death of Christ should do. After mentioning the centurion's faith, he moves now to this man named Joseph in verse 43. And I love the two words that Mark mentions in verse 43 when he talks about Joseph from the area of Arimathea. It says that Joseph took courage. Don't you love that? Now, now, watch this, church. This is pre-resurrection. And often we think about the resurrection being the place where the disciples were kind of emboldened. It, it, you know, they were kind of wandering and lost. And admittedly, they did go back to fishing. There were days in which they were doubtful. But here's a picture of a, of a disciple before the resurrection, seeing the death of Christ and being emboldened, courageously motivated to stand for Christ. So it's pre-resurrection. And it may be pre-conversion. Now, the jury's out on this. We can have different opinions. But I find the phrase that he was looking for the kingdom of God to be an interesting one. It could indicate he's a believer. Other gospel accounts, they use the word disciple. One even uses the phrase secret disciple. So perhaps he was. But remember, he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. That's what's mentioned here when it says the word council. So you have a member of, of the Sanhedrin, which they opposed Jesus. You have someone who, like Nicodemus, perhaps maybe he was a Christian secretly, or maybe he was still considering it. We know this. He was at least curious. We don't know the full extent of his faith, but we do know this, that once he saw Jesus die, he took courage. And watching Jesus 
sacrificially die, brought Joseph to the place of living courageously. And this is the need of the hour. This is what the death of Christ should do for you. It should bring you to places of courage. I think, first of all, courageous conversions. There may be some of you listening and watching this morning. You're still holding on to your sin. You're still guarding your idols. You refuse to trust Christ as the only way to be saved. Perhaps you think you've been so bad and wicked, God could never forgive you, so you'll hold on to those. Or maybe you think you don't need Christ. You've been a pretty good person. Both extremes leave out the necessity that only Jesus can forgive sins. You can't remedy that situation on your own. You've been afraid to just let go and trust God. This morning, I want to invite you to look at Jesus on the cross, dying in your place and paying your penalty. Let that be the motivating factor to turn from sin, to repent, and to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you can say something like this. Say, God, I do believe that Jesus Christ is your son. That he came, he lived the life I could never have lived, this perfect life. He died the death I should have died. He died in my place and you raised him from the dead to show that you are completely satisfied with his offering. So God, would you through Jesus save me this morning? I trust Jesus by faith and would you by your grace forgive my sin and make me your son or daughter? And as I say almost every single week, God will do exactly that. He will save you from your sin. That's the kind of courageous conversion that can come from looking at Jesus dying in your place. But I think we also need courageous commitment. Don't you love how in this text, Joseph shows up and Joseph speaks up? Do you see that? He's no longer afraid to go to, to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. He's clearly, unashamedly identifying with Jesus. He's, he's coming, coming out of the darkness, out of the shadows, and he's saying, I believe in this one. Give me his body. Man, now is the time for God's people to show up, to speak up, to unashamedly identify as a follower of Jesus, to be distinct. And church, I would just call upon you in this time when our nation is gripped by anxiety, when many are uncertain, they're fearful. This is the time for the Christian to have the most calm and sane posture on the planet because we know the one who is ordaining and controlling and authorizing and, and in charge. It's God. He's the one who sent his son Jesus to die in our place. We can have great confidence. We pray to him. We walk with him. Church, be courageous. Yes, let's follow the guidelines of our government. Let's be careful, but let's be faithful to clearly identify and be distinct in how we obey Jesus. This comes from seeing Christ in his most important moment, on the cross, dying for us and paying our price. And so for the courage to live Christianly, look to the cross. See Jesus dying sacrificially. Yes, as the only suitable substitute for sinners, saving us personally from sin's penalty and punishment. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.